Welcome to the first Media Agenda Talk uh, for this term. They run every Tuesday at 5. We'll finish at 6 o'clock. Just to um, remind you what the purpose of these uh, lectures is, they're designed loosely to complement MC408 theories uh, lectures, but in quite a kind of loose, we like to think imaginative way. Um, they are an official lecture, so don't walk out early, please, and also uh, make sure you turn up for uh, every week. Sometimes there's going to be subjects which you think, well, that's not my kind of core interest. But one of the purposes of this series of talks is to give, a, give you a diversity of insights from different sectors across media and communications so that you experience uh, the whole gamut. So uh, please come along. The purpose is very much to hear from uh, outstanding practitioners about their work, but the people we've chosen are all thoughtful people who have insights into how their work fits into wider trends and issues in media communications. Um, it's very much a chance for you to engage as well. There's going to be time at the end, we're running out of time today, but there'll be time at the end where you're able to ask questions. So, you know, make a note, and if you've got something you want to bring up, bring it up afterwards. We're also keen that you engage uh, via social media. Obviously, there's a college Facebook account, but I guess Twitter is the most um, live and easy. The uh, Polis Twitter will be tweeting, I think, tonight. And that is the hashtag Polis uh, Flux. Um, all the details of the speakers uh, are on the Polis blog, and we'll be uh, reporting on it afterwards to our Polis interns. Today, I'm really pleased we've got a perfect speaker to um, give you a bit of a kind of visionary, imaginative approach, which starts from a concern uh, with the idea of design. Now, when I started in my uh, own media career uh, many decades ago, design was a very limited technical exercise. It was basically making things look quite pretty. So if I worked in TV, uh, design was a question of making studios uh, look nice and to work well. And one of the really interesting things is about how that concept of design, partly thanks to new technologies, partly to the sort of complexity of the way that uh, those technologies and the idea of design fits into wider issues like data and so on, it's become a much more kind of multi-dimensional concept. And today we've got a wonderful speaker who's going to explain that. Anna Jane is the director and co-founder of Superflux. And to explain what Superflux does, again, I think is symptomatic of the state of uh, design and research in this, in this field, it's quite difficult. It's basically a pioneering uh, design enterprise which does all sorts of clever things with technologies, looking at how they fit into not just products, um, but also into uh, communities and people's lives. And like many of you, is a globalista, born in uh, India, uh, a citizen, if you like, of the digital world now. She likes to cross professional uh, as well as national boundaries. So please give a very warm uh, LSE welcome to Anna Jane. Thank you. Thanks. 
Yeah, so thank you, Charlie, for the great introduction. Thank you, Julia, for inviting me. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here today. Um, so this is our studio. It's in Bermondsey right now. Very small space. We are just five people at the minute. But we are a very networked community of various artists, designers, technologists, makers, and... Um, you know, strategic types all together exploring implications of emerging technologies for our culture and society. Um, this is broadly what we do. How can organizations transform to become better aligned with the changing, de changing demands and challenges of the 21st century? It's really that question that we ask around technology and the way it interacts with culture, politics, society. And you can find a lot of our work on the website. So today I'm not really going to talk about our work as much. Go to superflux.in and you'll find out what we do. Obligatory slide of the kind of the organizations we work with. So I want to take on a little bit more of a personal um, talk today. Um, this is Professor Ranjan. Um, on a Sunday a few weeks ago, he posted a selfie on Facebook, one of his many selfies, hundreds and thousands of selfies. Three hours later, he was no more. He was a professor, he was a mentor. Um, I'm here today because of him. It was a deep shock, not just to me, but to the entire design community and the wider world whom he touched. I could not help but think of the fragility of life. It was in that moment that I just finished recording my three-year-old son's first encounter with virtual reality. As I looked at my son, that sudden sense of loss made me consider my own mortality more than ever before. In the absence of a prolific collection of selfies, I considered writing a letter to my son, something he might read in the future in the event of my own untimely death. But sitting down to contemplate what I might write, I was continually drawn to the question, in what future world would this letter find him? So as I mentioned before, these are just some examples of the work we do, often investigating potential features, normally through the lens of a specific technology. But this raw personal emotion gave another level of poignancy to that moment's consideration. Given this professional context and this personal context, I'm hoping to address this question today um, and to talk about some of the technological trends and concerns that we have at Superflux. Um, and this is a big question, so I'm not even suggesting that I'm going to be able to really, really kind of, you know, I'm barely going to be able to scratch the surface of this. But what I want to do is that being an opening talk for this term and for the year, year to come, I hope I can throw out some themes that you're hopefully going to be able to think about over, the, over your course period. So basically, when I was thinking about these kind of questions about the future, the, the, there are very fundamental questions that come up. What are the futures we are building for ourselves and our children? How are our visions of the future shaped and formed? And what impact do these have on our lives? What power, ultimately, what power do we have to change and influence the future that is being created for us? 
Why is we conference here or talk about these kind of things here today? The future is manifesting all around you in the form of a web app, a, a new product launch, a news headline, a political party, a treaty, a pact, a patent. The future is manifesting all around us, but somehow we feel... Yeah, I saw... Um, and is that better? Luckily, it's within reach. So on, it's not been turned on. We use this one. If we put this one close to him, Yeah, you can see this loop of the video loop several times at least. So now you can focus on what I'm saying. So yeah, what I, what I was trying to say is that whilst we talk about this here, whilst we're sitting here in this room, I don't know, 100 of you or 200 of you, the future is happening all around us. You know, in form of a news update, a project, a product launch, a political patent, a treaty, uh, and what what not. But the thing the thing really is that even though it's within reach, we often struggle to make sense of it. The top popular term for this in psychology is called selective exposure. Simply put, we favor information that reinforces pre-existing views and beliefs, and avoid information that might question our beliefs and attitudes. It was precisely this kind of bias that was responsible for the 2008 bankruptcy of the Lehman Brothers Investment Bank, which in turn triggered the global financial crisis. In the zeal for profit and gain, politicians, economists, financial advisors ignored the mathematical evidence that foretold the housing market crash in favor of flimsy justifications for upholding the status quo. In situations where we are confronted with ideas that conflict our pre-existing beliefs and attitudes, we experience a form of mental discomfort. You know, it's not nice. We don't, we don't like that. Leon Festinger called this cognitive dissonance. It's often used in simple things like, you know, people who might work in offices and steal simple supplies like post-it notes and Sharpies and feel uncomfortable about it, but justify it with explanations like, oh, I'm not being paid enough, or I'm being made to work long hours, and whatnot. Scientists, a bigger example is climate change. So scientists continue to warn us about global warming. Many, many of us are aware of it, but either because of direct vested interests in it, such as being the chief executive of Volkswagen, you've heard about it, or for lesser mortals like ourselves, the burden of doing something about it simply less flying or having fewer children is difficult. So we seek out information that will be comforting and find justifications for our actions. These are just some examples of cognitive weaknesses that, as well as blindsiding us, are often used by various industries to ensure that we only consume specific information whilst ignoring others. Given that many of you will become part of this industry landscape, it's quite important to bear that in mind. The media landscape often purposefully presents us with carefully crafted, singular future visions of the future, which are quite often full of glossy glass surfaces and effortless telepathy. This is the future presented by corporations. 
unless we understand these conditions, our capacity to create the future we want will not be in our hands and we will have no control over it. So today what I want to do is that we see these visions in the, for the future being presented to us in the technological world, in the world I work in, and go beneath these visions we consume or create, beneath the hype that surrounds some of the big technological trends and understand how it is actually all connected. And I'm going to do that by starting with some very mundane activities. So, such as socializing and shopping. So, until recently, I was a prime Amazon member, using it to the fullest, buying emergency nappies at two in the night. They arrive at my doorstep, eight in the morning, super convenient. Next time, I was offered wet wipes, of course. Then I was offered the beautiful, cute onesies, the, the books that promise the dream of sleep, the pacifiers, and so on. I was hooked. And of course, there were the coupons, free coupons and vouchers. So we become enveloped in these habit-forming loops, thanks to the convenience of it all. The fingerprint login, the one-click buy button, the saved credit details. This system of cue, routine, reward, in which the brain converts a sequence of actions into an automatic routine, is called chunking by researchers at MIT. A simple example is driving a car. When you first start learning to drive, you have to have a tremendous amount of concentration and effort to make sure that you don't run into anyone or kill yourself. But after that, you get really used to it. It's a highly repetitive activity, and the brain requires very little effort. So the act of driving becomes chunked into a subroutine. What I'd like to suggest is that these habit-forming digital activities turn us into what one would call chunkers, a new 24-7 labor class of digital workforce. Giant computer servers today accumulate the data and metadata of our most mundane everyday pasts, creating a historical universe that is constantly mined to find new ways of giving back to us today what we already liked yesterday with variations. The inevitable effect of chunking is the narrowing and simplification of our experiences making it easier for smarter and cleverer recommendation systems to predict what we might want next. So this baffling patent diagram is an example of Amazon's patent for anticipatory shipping. So things we haven't yet ordered but are likely to do so are already being shipped. I have recently started confusing the Amazon algorithms by searching for all sorts of things that I absolutely don't want. <laughs> so the recommendations are, well, outrageous to say the least. You get a Nicolas Cage funny white t-shirt, <laughs> a nose pencil sharpener, another Nicolas Cage small cardboard cutout, and so on. You know, I know I've probably dug my own grave of insufferable spam. But jokes apart, when such systems start showing signs of autonomy, things can start getting eerily complicated. One little example is my latest standoff with Siri. Ever since I asked Siri where the closest bridge to me was, I'm inundated with antidepressant and addiction help spam. We are going to enter into ever more complex battles over autonomy and agency with the gadgets we live and use. 
Whilst concerns about robots taking over our jobs are hitting headlines all over, I think we need to delve a little bit more into the idea of what it means to progress or regress human agency. How much capacity do we have to push ourselves to the limits of our capacities? These, these are these Kiva robots at Amazon are pretty incredible. And this will become very important to think about with the Internet of Things. It's a world that you're going to find yourselves in when you graduate. This idea of Q routine reward is filtering out into the infrastructure, physical infrastructure, into the meat space. Instead of buying stuff online, things all around you, simple objects, are going to be keeping track of you as long as you keep feeding them data. So some examples of Internet of Things, right? This is Mimo, a smart baby monitor built into a onesie, notifies you when your baby wakes up or changes her breathing pattern. So when she's stirring, the lights turn on, the coffee machine starts, and baby Mozart starts playing. <laughs> now, I know many of you might not be parents, but if you are a parent, you know that babies do not sleep through the night. So this promise, the program behavior, is going to be the biggest irritant. We've also heard about, I don't know how many of you have heard, but recently the Samsung fridge got hacked and made hundreds of thousands of Gmail accounts, Google accounts, email accounts vulnerable. Also, there's a Samsung television that he overhears your conversations. So some of the work, I'm going to try to show a little bit glimpses of some of the work we do. So this Internet of Things is obviously a technology. It's a technological trend, and we are working in the space, so we have no choice but to think about it. So we decided, you know, we want to understand, we want to explore the frictions that arise between such kind of program behavior. And we looked at care devices, as healthcare is a big, big theme within IoT. So the idea that, you know, one size fits, fits all care devices, and how would they, how, what sort of frictions would arise when an, with an elderly person's habits and rituals. So this is Thomas, aged 70. He has been, this is a fictional and a short film that we made about the project. Um, he has been given smart devices by his children who live far away, three kids, adult kids, don't have time for the dad, but decided to give the dad these smart devices, a smart fork that will monitor his food intake, make sure he eats healthy food, a smart cane that makes sure he has enough exercise, and a smart mattress that monitors his sleep and rest. You know. They send this, these devices out to him. But what happened was that these devices were constantly nudging him and telling him to do things which he found quite intrusive. So he stopped using them, only to be nagged by his children, constantly getting messages saying, you know, come on, what are you doing? And so he starts looking for ways to outsmart the devices. And I'm going to show you just a small part of this clip, of, uh, part of a, a small clip of this film. It's called Uninvited Guests. Again, you can see the full version on our website. Yeah, so that's a short, to just start showing that, you know, it's not that you can just give a technology to people and then they're just going to behave in that pro program manner. What we think is that this kind of technology, uh, quite, there's a lot of hype around it because people think this technology is the goal. But I really think that it's not so much about technology being the goal, it's actually what you can do with it. How can we create more ethical, sustainable business models? How can we make sure that the data that is being collected through these devices is, has, has people, uh, people have control and ownership of their data? How can we make this data more meaningful to people and allow them to decide what they want to do with it? 
we just started a project uh, called Buggy Air, where we are giving parents and carers these set of very accurate air pollution sensors, and they are going to decide how to measure the data, what they want to do. It is a small experiment, but trying to create alternate business models. So we consider startups in, in this technology world, we consider startups and accelerators to be kind of disruptors of technology. Disruption is a big word, and early adopters, you know. But ironically, nation states are often the first ones using these technologies in often unexpected and unsettling ways. So this is China today, and uh, from what the news says, I've heard that the government is currently building a social credit system where they will use big data and various surveillance systems to publicly rate their citizens on sincerity scores. People will know they are being watched, and their standing in society will be affected by their behavior. But really, this should not be shocking for us here in the West. Just last week, we heard the story of Karma Police, this project that GCHQ was running, where every visible internet user here has been tracked and looked on. So this has been happening on Spastel for a very long time. And lest we forget, there are some very famous, obvious icons of these systems. But, but, but beyond the more news-heavy you know, surveillance state, if we look through the cracks and crevices, we discover the less visible side of these big data systems and digital infrastructures. So the same system which allows company to companies to collect copious amounts of our personal data and predict what we might need is also being used for policing and law enforcement. What can we learn from Walmart and Amazon about fighting crime in a recession, ask law enforcement agencies today, who are busy currently trawling your social data, social media data, for early warnings such as postings of parties and wild gigs on Facebook and so on. But the problem is that once a computer identifies an area as a hotspot where something has happened once, that neighborhood will start getting profiled as a dangerous area. So it lowers the bar for what is considered suspicious in that area. And that also leads to a lot of racial profiling. Another example of this kind of predictive systems and big data systems is static 99, the most popular tool in the US for predicting whether sex offenders are likely to commit crimes again after they have been released. It's been used to decide whether to keep them in jail even after they have served their full sentence. But the fact is there's no way a system can predict where, what an individual will do. A recent report of such systems said that the margin of error for individuals could be as great as between 5 and 95%. Yet, people are being kept in prisons on the basis that such a system predicts what they might do, that they could do something bad in the future. Although we might find reports and archives of our most mundane daily activities dull, these gray, boring blocks, data centers, are today the biggest centers of power. Our futures are being built on these archives. If ever there was a truth in the idea of how your past is going to come to haunt you in the future, it's now. You are only as much as your data karma will let you be. Something to, to explore this area, we did a project around drones. We started looking at autonomous systems which collect vast amounts of data and where that system is going in the future. So there's a whole fuss around civilian drones. 
What we were interested in understanding is when you have civilian drones hovering in the skies above our heads, what happens to them? What happens when that network agent gets autonomy within the physical world? So for that project, it was called Drone Avery. We actually went ahead and built a series of working prototypes of various different drones. A surveillance drone, a press drone, a traffic drone, and an advertising drone. And these are sort of uh, critical examples, I would say. They are pulled, they are designed based on trends, based on what current functions of drones are being predicted. And we got them to fly, and then we made a film about the world that this, they might, they could potentially see. And it's a four and a half minute film, and I'm just going to show it to you. Yeah, so that's just one example. <laughs> I don't want to go through the credits and everything, but it's just one example of visualization of a world where things, where we are constantly being tracked, where data has been constantly tracked, collected, and archived. Now, all of this might seem a tad dystopic, but, the, but it's a very real aspect of our technological landscape. I think one of the reasons, and I think it's something you're going to con confront a lot when you graduate, is we often overlook these problematic aspects because we tend to imbue technology with the ideals of those who create it and the messages of those who market it. However, you know, a creator can only suggest the affordances and a marketer can only suggest a use case. The technology's true impact will always be defined by those who use it. Whether that's knitting groups or fascist regimes, technology becomes an amplifier and an accelerator of the social, cultural, and political values of the groups who use it, not those who make it, and not those who mess create messages about it. And it will continue to be used in ways you cannot imagine. So recently, this article has been doing the rounds. Lots of people have been very surprised that Syrian refugees have smartphones. Yes, it's interesting because people here are seeing that this technology is being used in unexpected ways. But I think it needs a little bit of context. So this is Syria before the civil war broke out in 2011, one of the most beautiful squares of Damascus. Not one of the world's richest countries, but doing well. With more than enough comforts to buy and afford a cheap or not so cheap smartphone. before this happened. And whilst these are the popular images we see in the media today, they are often devoid of the most recent historical context. As millions of Syrians flee their home, they grab the most essential items that will help them chart their journeys forward. WhatsApp, messaging, maps take on a whole new meaning and become, as they become a lifeline for hundreds of thousands of refugees. Simultaneously, that same very technology is being ingeniously exploited by oppressive forces. So soldiers at government checkpoints and Islamic state checkpoints are constantly demanding Facebook passwords. They look at people's Facebook profiles to determine one's, one's allegiance in the war. And then altogether, just like that, these things can be switched off. Just a few weeks ago, the government of India turned off internet for 63 million people in my home state of Gujarat. It was known as the WhatsApp ban. It was implemented because it apparently incited social unrest. A very stark reminder of where power lies and how quickly something we have come to rely on can be taken away. And this is a small example of something history has repeatedly demonstrated. 
those with the least power to participate in creating the future often suffer the worst consequences of its manifestations. And this is important because ge geopolitical power keeps shifting and will not stay the same and in the same place tomorrow. So if I were to write a letter to my son, continuing the early narrative, I will not fail to write to him about the incredible, powerful work of amazing num number of individuals around the world to create a more inclusive, plural, and aspirational world. I will write to him about the world-changing projects that are currently being built. I will share with him a world of a future of promises too. But I want to, I want him to grow up with a nuanced world, a bit more, more than just optimism. So as designers, as practitioners, we often have to think about uses, about designing for our consumers, designing for people, designing for users. And if we are to think about who those users, consumers of tomorrow will be, then they're going to be a lot more than just people that we think and know of. They're going to be very diverse, very different. They're going to include extremist groups, fascist regimes, refugees, creditors, and bots. Lots of them. And so any future we design, and all of you are going to become part of it, we need to be diverse, plural, and inclusive. And so let's just for a brief moment, five minutes, take a, do a thought experiment into, into extending into just one possible probable future. A pop, it's a populist theory of the future, let's say. So say 50 years from now, 2060, 2070, there's a, a very good blog called Wait But Why, very accessible, <laughs> by Tim Urban. And on that blog, he, uh, he polls various AI experts, various experts from the artificial intelligence field, who place their estimate of the birth of an artificial superintelligence, or an ASI, one that exceeds human intelligence to around 2060. That kind of intelligence we couldn't understand anymore. An ASI would be, of, be, would be orders of magnitude more powerful than a human mind, and it would use its power to continuously improve itself even further. For a human trying to understand an ASI would be like a spider trying to understand a human's mind and culture. This graph says it all. Couple this big trend, very likely, in the next 50 years, with one of the biggest societal concerns today. The scientists at UK's Met Office and Department of Energy and Climate Change warned that there's going to be a 3 to 4% or 4 degrees centigrade rise in temperatures by around 2016 without strong action on emissions, which will have a global GDP loss of 0.7 to 2.5%, resulting in a 40% loss of agricultural crops like rice, corn, and many more. People will be forced out of their homes on a grand scale, from coastal areas because of rising seas, from areas no longer habitable due to high temperatures or drought, from changing industrial and commercial practices. Maybe human society will be so displaced that they will not be able to adapt to it anymore, just about the same time as we have artificial superintelligence. What world will that be? Some of us might still be alive then. Well, I think most of you will be alive then. I'm not sure me. My son would be 63 then. And if he did have children, they'd probably be just a little bit younger. Suddenly time compresses and nothing seems that far off. This might feel like a work of fiction and it, will, it may well turn out to be one. But the because the future is always, always uncertain. But its potential is very real. 
Let's just have another look at the events unfolding around us today. The situation in Syria seen, can be seen as a microcosm of this future. Researchers and scientists have said this for several years now. Global warming intensified Syria's worst ever drought between 2010 and 2006 and 2010, which destroyed the country's agriculture and pushed 15 million people into the cities, which, is, which were already straining from an influx of refugees from war-torn Iraq and poor government. Professor Seeger of Columbia University says, I think it's only just beginning. It's going to continue through the current century as part of the general drying of the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean. I don't see how things are going to survive there. On the artificial intelligence field, well, we've already started to see the impact of autonomous robotic systems. And so I think this question suddenly becomes a lot more important to think about. How will we live? How will we survive? How will we sustain? How will we endure? So the problem, and there's something in the work we do a lot, is you know, there's, there's this kind of interest in either creating utopias or dystopias. But I think the problem with both utopias and dystopias is that they, they, they demand either fear or hope. While fear often paralyzes, hope fosters placid anticipation. Both immobilize. So when considering how do we move beyond this dichotomy, I'm reminded of Charles Ellis's quote. There's no need to look for fear or hope, but only to look for new weapons. And I really hope that this is an opportunity for you in this year to develop your own weapons. Your own weapons which you can use to be able to live in this world and to start creating the world that we desire. Your students, your media agents, you'll be journalists, you'll be communicators. So I think you all have amongst you a suit of sophisticated tactics and tools that you can use. If you want to go out on the streets and protest, that's of course one way. But quite often, information that you're protesting about is hidden and opaque, and systems are far more opaque than we understand. So could we instead, could you instead become stealth activists? So Keller Esterling has written a great book about this called Extra Statescraft, in which she says, gossip, rumor, gift-giving, compliance, mimicry, comedy, remote control, meaninglessness are all tools. And so I've kind of made a very quick back of the napkin list throughout IEU. What can you do? Can you advocate data ownership for citizens in the work you do in the future? Can you then de develop alternate business models based on those data ownership models? Can you persuade your peers who do startups or technology companies to adopt these models? Can you make more friends with climate scientists? Do rigorous research, create metrics about what is likely to happen. Infiltrate those results into popular press. Read politicians' mandates carefully. Use social media to question them. Create memes to expose the hypocrites. Have company roadmaps, have academia roadmaps about the future, about future visions, if you find them problematic. Make alternate versions and gossip about their potential. These are just few. The idea is that you have creativity, you have the power of innovation, you, have, you can have access to tools to leverage this power to create more collective, desirable futures. So we all know George Orwell for the bleak dystopia of his book, 1984. The thing is, he wrote this book because he was actually full of hope. 
as Thomas Pynchon wrote in his 2003 foreword for this book, all will remain confident in the ability of ordinary people to change anything if they would. It's in the boy's smile in any case that we return to, direct and radiant, proceeding out of an unhesitating faith that the world at the end of the day is good and that human decency like parental love can always be taken for granted. A faith so honorable that we can almost imagine all good, and perhaps even ourselves for a moment anyway, swearing to do whatever must be done to keep it from ever being betrayed. Thank you. That's fantastic. I'm sure you agree. Yeah. Data and drones, Syria, refugees, climate change. Now, if anybody has to run to us another thing, do you want to jump out now? But very, very quickly, please, if you really have to get out. Because I think we'll take 10 minutes for some questions, if that's all right. Is there anybody, especially at the top, anybody at the top who would um, like to ask a question? Anyone? If not down here, anybody with a question or a point? Keep quiet. Keep quiet. Someone's going to ask a question right there. Do you want to stand up and shout? <laughs> Keep quiet, we can hear the question. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I think that's just like I think, I think the. 
Yeah, basically, um, so, so what, yeah, so what, what he's saying is that you know some of the biggest social media. I was talking about infiltrating social media and creating memes. The question is that some of the biggest social media campaigns have not managed to achieve anything, um, and that's true. So I, I really do not want to, you to think that you. So so this is about actually just stealth, in, you know, infiltration with stealth. So you're not going to. Get together in your with the brand and say, right, let's make this big viral campaign about about on social media. This is about methods of infiltration. It's about tactical approaches rather than strategic approaches to infiltrate and to kind of slide, sneak into things. So, one one uh, one example I'd give is Women on Water, this organization, and they they have done a very interesting thing where they've they've kind of. Uh, looked at the legal and political sort of boundaries of different nation states, and various nation states have very strong anti-abortion policies. So what they did is they got a boat, and they got all these doctors and nurses on the boat, and they go around, dock the boat just outside different countries for women who want to have abortions. And they're not crossing any sort of uh, legal boundary, they're staying on that. Recently they also used drones to go and drop some anti-abortion pills in Poland. And so I think what I'm trying to get at here is is kind of how do you become an activist without going out and protesting? It's, yeah. Any other questions? Upstairs, anybody? Downstairs? No? Yeah? Uh, I think it was really great. Um, there was one particular moment that I loved when you mentioned being new technology with the ideas of It's all about the implication of the message. You know, medium is the message after all. Um, I guess my question is um, what can we do as media students in order to champion the cause? Like you mentioned stealth activism. I mean, for most of us, I mean, we're all on social every day. We're bystanders. We're, you know, some of us are lucky enough to be content producers. So, what would you suggest we do? I think, I think just to start by actually understanding the messages you're consuming from popular media in itself is highly, is very important. So if you're seeing BBC, are you seeing RT.com as well, or are you seeing news from China, are you seeing Indian, how, how are you equipping yourself to better understand a more plural world? And I think that is a starting point, and once you get started to understand these multiple viewpoints, I'm sure you'll find your own tactics to deal with that. You know, I, I, I cannot kind of design that future for you, but I can suggest some possibilities. You can make a choice of not being a bystander by digging deeper into what these various invisible infrastructures are all about. You think? Go ahead. Collaborate with people from different disciplines. I think that's really key to find ways to collaborate with different 
people from different disciplines. That was a fantastic way to start this series. Please thank uh, Jane. Thank you.